Tonight we will be discussing the founding of the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. I will be reading from a text from the DPRK website. To begin, we will be discussing outside of the text the founding of the Workers' Party of Korea, how it came to be, and the parties that came before it very briefly. In 1919, the March 1st movement declared independence in Korea and started the Provisional Republic of Korea. The vice president and prime minister of the Provisional Republic was a man named Yi Dong-hui, who led the first Communist Party of Korea. He led the party from 1919 until his death in 1935. At the time of his death, there was a multitude of different parties in Korea. Kim Il-sung came around and, with the help of the Comintern and the party in the Soviet Union, to take all these parties together as best as possible and to merge them together into a singular workers' party. This didn't fully work until around the end of World War II. And around this time, we also got the People's Republic of Korea, which was led by a Korean communist named Yo Eun-hyung, who was assassinated. Yo Eun-hyung was assassinated by Korean nationalists at the behest of the United States. This happened in 1946. At this time, the Japanese had been pushed out of the Korean Peninsula by the Soviet Union, and the Korean Peninsula had been partitioned into the North and South, in which the Soviet Union controlled the North and the United States controlled the South. This lasted for about four years, and due to aggression from the South at the behest of the United States, we had the start of the Korean War. And that's where I'll have my first break for questions, comrades. People know, you should know, I do the KFA USA Korean Friendship Association. So I'm just doing a plug now. We'll do it throughout the class. Just go to kfausa.org. We have all the material you want. And I just wanted to mention, Searsha was correct. The Soviet Union defeated Japan like in Manchuria. Korea had actually defeated Japan on its own. The interesting thing is to look at the Battle of Pachangpo. It was not actually a success for Korea, but they did end up beating the Japanese on their own. Of course, obviously, the Soviet Union helped immensely. But just a plug for KFA USA. Yeah, I was wondering if you could mention the fact that before the U.S. became involved, there was a vote in the U.N., and the Soviet Union walked out of the U.N. before that vote was taken, which allowed the United States and U.N. peacekeeping forces to enter the South of Korea to start the Korean War. The other thing is that there is an excellent article that was published in The Worker, it might have been the last issue, of Wilford Burchett. His name is George, and it's all about Korean history, so you should refer to that also. One of the things that I think would be useful to bring up was when Sigmund Rhee was installed in the South, the persecution the U.S. did towards leftists of all stripes, communists and otherwise, just suspected communists. Now, it really was the South that fired the first bullet in the Korean War. That's correct, comrade. There is a infamous massacre on an island in South Korea where some 160 people were executed and thrown in mass graves just for being suspected communists before the Korean War started. Also, there was an agreement in the United Nations that the occupying power would only stay for a certain amount of time. I think it was four years That's after correct. they became Ottoman powers. And then the only one to honor the agreement was the Soviet Union who withdrew on the timeline set down by the United Nations. The United States did not, and they're still there. 
That's correct. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. I was wondering where that article was so that I could read more information about it. The one that I'm reading from for the class, I got that on the DPRK's actual website. If you go to the DPRK website, there's a section underneath where it says DPR of Korea, and you can go to history, and it says founding of the DPRK. Okay, I want to mention a couple of things. 1970, I was involved with the CPUSA, and under the guidance of Joseph Brandt, the party set up a group called the American Korean Friendship and Information Center. For short, it was called ACFIC. American Korean Friendship and Information Center. And Joe Brandt was one of the volunteers who went to Spain, the International Brigades, and he was a lifelong communist. And the old party gave him the responsibility to build an organization that was supportive of North Korea, DPRK. And I was on the editorial board of that magazine, so I want you to know that. On this issue, I go way back. The question I wanted to bring up is a statement, actually. The colonial pro-Japanese structure in Korea Korea. There were people that we used to call Quislings. Quislings is a term from World War II, came from one of the Scandinavian countries. A Quisling was a person who supported the fascists. When the troops marched in from Germany, the Quisling, the traitor from that country, was right there to help the German masters. And the term is Quisling for the people who don't know that, the younger people. But there were Quislings in Korea, and one of them was the first president. I believe his name was Park Chung-hee, if I got the name correct. That is correct, Angela. Yeah. Yes, all right. And Thank and one more thing, just briefly on him and on actually the people who succeeded him after they killed him and took it. They were all imperial Manchu cows, how you say it, or whatever. Uh, it's the Japanese colony. So the U.S. just inherited the Japanese system they had left, and they used the same Japanese Korean soldiers. That's who became the president. And his daughter yep. was recently president until she yes, was that's right. corrupt that's and right. had to leave. He was also the first, he was the president alongside Yi Dong-hui in the provisional government when the provisional government was declared in 1919. And he was ousted for corruption and embezzling money. And then he became the first president of South Korea. And so I think we all basically know what happened during the Korean War. We've all studied this, but I'll go over it real quick. The North did not attack first. There was aggression from the South first, as I said before. There was retaliation from the North that led to the Korean War. The Soviet Union wasn't really sure about getting involved in another war because... As Stalin famously said, the people in Russia don't want another war. They just got done with a really long, really bad one. But they did send material aid. The entire Eastern Bloc sent material aid. Mongolia sent material aid. Hungary and the DPRK sent medic. They sent planes. They did send some troops over to help. China sent probably the most aid out of anybody over to Korea in terms of help. And um, despite all this aid, despite all their efforts, as successful as they were, the United States leveled 90% of the DPRK. 90% of the entire country was destroyed. Three million people were killed, mostly civilians, and things are almost reverted back to the Stone Age in Korea at this point in the North. Meanwhile, the South, China intentionally tried to not bomb civilian buildings. They tried to attack exclusively military targets, while the NATO allies intentionally tried to attack civilian targets so they could cripple the Northern economy in the event of any sort of victory 
history. And, you know, as I'm sure you know, there was the ridiculous plan to turn the northern border into a nuclear desert from MacArthur, which luckily didn't happen. And so 1953, we get the DMZ. Hostilities, for the most part, seem to have kind of stopped, but not really. Hostilities have never entirely stopped. And so now we go into the actual founding of the DPRK, and the text starts, Korea was seething with the joy of liberation. So despite everything that happened, they were happy to have been liberated. President Kim Il-sung returned triumphantly home to an enthusiastic welcome from the people. He advanced three major tasks for the building of a party, state, and armed forces in the liberated country, and specific ways and means to realize them. On October 10th, 1945, in Pyongyang, the Central Organizing Committee of the Communist Party of North Korea was formed in August of 1946. The Communist Party merged with the new Democratic Party to form the Workers' Party of Korea in June of 1949. The Workers' Parties of North and South Korea merged to develop into the Workers' Party of Korea. Now that they had the Workers' Party of Korea, the entire Korean people came to have a guiding force which would step up considerably the struggle to build a new nation. After liberation, people's committees were organized all over the country. On this basis, the Provisional People's Committee of North Korea, a new type of government, was established on February 8, 1946. The entire people elected Comrade Kim Il-sung, the fearless patriot and national hero, chairman of the party. On having solved the problem of power, the Korean people began to carry out democratic reform so a number of democratic reforms were enforced. They were the laws on agrarian reform, on nationalization of industries, transport, communication, banks, and so on, on labor, and on sexual equality. At the same time, various steps were taken for the democratization of judicial, educational, and cultural affairs. On February 8, 1948, the Korean People's Revolutionary Army, founded on April 25, 1932, in the flames of the anti-Japanese revolutionary struggle, developed into the Korean People's Army, a regular army. Within a short space of time after liberation, under the leadership of Kim Il-sung, the tasks of anti-imperialist and anti-feudal democratic revolution were carried out triumphantly in the North. However, the Korean people's endeavor to build a unified, democratic, independent country was confronted with a grave difficulty. The U.S. authorities rejected the Korean people's fair demand for the simultaneous withdrawal of the Soviet and U.S. armed forces from Korea and for the settlement of the Korean issue by the Koreans themselves. Without warrant, they brought the Korean issue before the United Nations. They rigged up the UN Commission on Korea. In May 1948, they held a separate, quote-unquote, election in the South under the supervision of the Commission to manufacture the puppet government headed by Syngman Rhee. With this, the crisis of national division deepened. And I'll stop there for questions. I just wanted to make a quick comment. I don't know if he's going to mention it or not. Mao Zedong's own son died in this conflict. That's a good point. Oh. Thank you. So you said that Kim Il-sung was elected by the entire Korean people. So was this the only election that involved a unified Korea? As far as I'm aware, yes. So there were quote-unquote elections in the provisional government that existed from 1919 until the early 20s, but they weren't officially recognized. So so technically, yes. I was just wondering if you all could tell the class a little more about the sacrifice the Chinese people made in 1950 during Mao's resist U.S. imperialism and aid Korea campaign. Remember that in 1949, there was a revolution in China. China was a very, very poor country. It was the first time there was an attempt to unify the country. From the mountains of Yunnan came the guerrilla movement. And so remember that that was the period. So 1950, there was a signed the treaty 
treaty of friendship with the Soviet Union, and the aid came in from the Soviet Union. Without the Soviet aid, without that, China would have never moved anything. Factories came in, complete factories from the Soviet Union. They were taken down in Siberia and in other parts of Soviet and erected in China. And with them came engineers, Soviet engineers, and set up these factories. So by the time the Korean War came, was only a year or two later. Remember, 49, we got 50, 51, 52. So by the time, it was only three years later. So China really didn't have that much technology to put into the war. But what they did do is they had Chinese volunteers. And those Chinese volunteers actually changed the course of the war. The U.S. was winning when the Chinese volunteers came in across the border. And the war changed and the North was winning. And that was all done under, of course, the period of the Chinese Communist Party leadership with Mao Zedong as one of the leaders. Unsurprisingly, I've always been taught North Korea invaded first. Could you give just some more information on the start of the Korean War? I'm very familiar with it. Yeah, absolutely, Comrade. Or do you want to do that? Go ahead, go ahead. No, I just want to mention a book, The Hidden History of the Korean War, which is a very thick, 500-page book. It was written in the United States by a left-wing historian, I.F. Stone. First name was Izzy, I.F. Stone. I urge people to get a copy of that book. I don't know if it's in Marxist, whatever it is, .org, but you can get a PDF copy of it. It is excellent. It goes into the whole history that Sersha was mentioning, who started the skirmishes, and finally, the North said, um, when the North finally retaliated, that was, they call that, the, call, the beginning of the Korean War. Sersha, anything to add? Yeah, I just wanted to bring up that there was a lot of small little attacks by the South through the use of assassins going in and killing members of the Workers' Party, killing random citizens. They set up what can only really be described as Korean Gestapo in the South. It got to a point where the North said, enough is enough. And they said, we have to liberate the South, essentially, is what it came down to. Okay, thank you, Comrade. I want to add to that, everybody who's taking notes. The name of John Forster, F-O-S-T-E-R, Dulles. D like in dog, U-L-L-E-S. Him and his brother were involved with the U.S. State Department, and their job was to try to roll back what happened after World War II in Europe and in Asia. These were the people who were saying that the U.S. lost China, and they were very anti-communist. They even remember this was the time when an American general wanted to drop a bomb on Korea and China, and that's the atmosphere that people, the young people should know here. The atmosphere was very militaristic of dropping atomic bombs. Okay, let's go on. So I'm going to skip ahead a little bit past the Korean War. I'll just cover a couple things real quick. During the war, like I said, 3 million Koreans were killed, countless Chinese comrades were killed. The Korean People's Army killed and captured 1.56 million people, including 405,000 U.S. soldiers. So it wasn't like a one-sided slaughter. They were able to actually hold their own. And originally, until the real NATO invasion that happened there, where you had all the NATO powers coming in 
and attacking with the United States, it looked like the North was going to win. They had gotten down almost to the southern tip of the peninsula, and they were forced back almost to the very edge of China. I mean, it was only because of that that we got to the situation we're at today. But I digress, and I'll continue with the reading now. The U.S. Army had dropped an average of 18 bombs on every square kilometer of the northern half of Korea, reducing Pyongyang and other towns and villages to ashes. Indeed, the post-war situation in the country presented what seemed to be inseparable difficulties. It was hard for the people to decide what to do first and how to do it. There was a mountain of work to be done. President Kim Il-sung was firmly convinced that as long as there were the people, the territory, and the party, a new life could be built. He roused the entire people in the struggle for post-war reconstruction. The post-war reconstruction was an extremely arduous struggle since it was started when our people could hardly obtain even a brick or a gram of cement. And remember, this is being written from the viewpoint of the Koreans. This is from the DPRK website. However, the Korean people who had been tempered through the war and staunchly united around the leader waged a heroic and selfless struggle. They displayed the revolutionary spirit of self-reliance to the full. They fought hard, surmounting one difficulty after another. They had to tighten their belts, but they built factories, enterprises, towns, and rural villages. The three-year plan for the post-war rehabilitation and development of the national economy, whose basic task was to achieve pre-war levels in all spheres of the national economy, was over-fulfilled by 22%. As a result, the war wounds were healed and the country switched over from a period of reconstruction to a period of technological modernization. At the beginning of the five-year plan, the reactionaries at home and abroad intensified their offensives against the Republic on an unprecedented scale. In these grim days, President Kim Il-sung held high the revolutionary banner of the Juche idea and confidently led the Korean people on the greater progress and the building of socialism. Just to mention quickly, Juche is a philosophy uh, built on Marxism-Leninism. There's a common misconception that it is not, but we're not going to get into that in this class. At the plenary meeting of the Central Committee of the Workers' Party of Korea in 1956 in December, Kim Il-sung advanced the militant slogan, let us produce more, practice economy, and overfulfill the five-year plan ahead of schedule. Shortly afterwards, he visited the workers at the Kangsung Steel Plant, the present Jolima Steel Complex, explained to them the country's situation, encouraged them to advance at the head of a grand march of socialist construction at the speed of Jolima, smashing passivity, conservatism, mysticism about technique. The working class of Kangsung and all other working people across the country responded to the leader's call and bravely overcame trials and difficulties which stood in the way of their advance. They crushed all the old norms and raided capacities and created new norms. That's to say, attacked the contradictions that existed in pre-socialist society. They built up a socialist economy. That's what they're talking about here, just to kind of dig through the fluff and look at what's being said here. 
They built up a socialist economy using Marxist principles here, is what they're saying. They affected achievements which defied imagination, thus bringing about a great upswing in all fronts of socialist construction. Industrial production grew at the extremely high rate of 44% in 1957. In the same year, there was a bumper harvest. The Cholima movement in Korea developed amid this great advance in socialist construction. Amid the flames of the Cholima movement, the Korean working people manufactured trucks, tractors, excavators, bulldozers, eight-meter tunneling lathes, and other modern machines and equipment. Let each machine tool make more movement. They produced over 13,000 tools over and above the yearly plan in 1959. In only a few months in 1958, they built more than 1,000 local industry factories throughout the country. Industrial production grew at the annual average rate of 36.6%. All this fully showed the heroic stamina and creative talents of the creative people galloping in the speed of Cholima. I'm going to stop for questions. Okay, excellent clarification. Cholima is, if I remember correctly, it's a Korean folk mythical that shows a picture of a horse, a white horse with wings. Correct. Yes. And what does it stand for, Cholima, that horse? It says here, the winged horse is said to be too swift and elegant to be mounted by any mortal man and is named after its ability to travel 1,000, it says li in a single day. Li is measurement, it's 500 meters. Okay, thank you. So it's a folklore in Korean culture. Thank you. Yes, that's okay. correct, comrade. Okay, is there any questions on what was read? Just uh, once I heard the part about the bumper crop, it made me wonder, what exactly is farmland like in that part of Korea? I had heard it's quite a challenge. I just don't know if there's any basis behind that. I was wondering if you knew. Yeah, it's a bit of a challenge. The north is really mountainous. It's not really set up for farmland, but they manage anyway. They've cultivated about as much farmland as they can in the north what little there is, and they've cultivated enough to manage to feed their people as best as they can. But despite that, and partially due to sanctions, they do still have to import food on occasion because of that. This is a more general question, but on Chinese social media, I've heard people say that China, it only liberated Korea to defend itself, not to defend its ally. Oh, I just want to say that is a line that is not held by the Chinese Communist Party at any time in its history. They have been very staunch in saying that it was in support of proletarian internationalism, that they wanted to help their allies. As a historian myself, I saw books written by American authors and Western authors who say that, but there's nothing to back it up. Anybody could say that a country got involved to defend their own interests, but that is so hard to prove because what is the national interest of a country? That's the question. I don't think it's just borders. I think there's other national interests of a country. Another question, Wilfred Pachet. Wilfred Pachet was an Australian communist. He was a reporter. He reported on not only the Vietnam War, but before that, what happened in Korea, a couple of years before that. He wrote a book that told the history of American chemical warfare in Korea. It was brought up at the United Nations, Soviet Union, and brought it up at the United Nations, and the West has denied it. 
But we know now, looking back at the history, that there's been chemical warfare used by the U.S. against other socialist countries, Cuba. The famous swine flu in Cuba in the 60s was done by the U.S. They admitted that, but they never admitted anything about Korea. So there's history of it. And it's interesting for them to talk about weapons of mass destruction in Syria, chemical warfare. This has all been initially done by the U.S. in the 50s. So your question about Wilfred Bichette, I said he wrote a book. Does anybody remember, I think it's called The Hidden War or The Untold War by Wilfred Bichette. I urge you to get it. Look under Google. I'd like the party to reprint it, New Outlook Publishers. It was such a controversial book that the copies that were sent in, printed in Australia, the United States in 52, 53, stopped it at the border. That when it came in on the ships, they dumped, this, is, this was in the New York Times at the time, they dumped the copies into the harbor of New York. So the question is, what were they hiding? You know, one has to ask the question, when a country steeps to that, what are they hiding? Yeah, how did North Korea apply Marxist-Leninist philosophy in their country when this battle was occurring, this warfare between a capitalist South Korea and a communist South China? I think most of the peasant-based revolutions in Asia, Africa, or Latin America for the most part I think the, the leaders of those countries drew their lessons from the Great October Socialist Revolution where the peasants played a very crucial role in the defeat of Tsardom. And I think that expanded to all these, uh, to all different countries like Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau, Algeria, Vietnam, since those are predominantly peasant countries. I think the peasants were very receptive to the ideology of Marxism-Leninism because before them, the Soviet peasants and peasants in China had won major victories against imperialism. So I think those countries were learning through the experiences of other nations. So you were talking about the uh, Talima movement, which seemed like a workers' movement. Does that have any parallels to the Stakhanovite movement in Russia and the USSR? I know what the Cholima movement is, but I don't know. I, I know about the Stakhanovite movement. Yes, I know a lot about that. Okay, the Stakhanovite movement was a movement where workers came to work on days they were off to do labor so that it would go into the general society and they would go faster in their industrial development. For example, on the farms, farmers came together to do extra work on a Saturday when they would have been off. And whatever they did, the growing of the vegetation, etc., helped the country because it was extra work. And in the cities, they did the same thing. They called it socialist emulation. It was where to show what the sacrifice for the greater good of society. Correct. That's right. That's how I know it. Thank you. I just wanted to get more information about the Soviet aid that was facilitating the Korean War because I didn't hear too much in terms of like Soviet support. I've, from what I mostly heard, they just sent aid to the Chinese to help the uh, Koreans, so I wasn't sure about that. Okay. Quickly, it was a diplomatic struggle besides a struggle on the battlefield. 
The way I understand it, the Chinese volunteer forces did battlefield contributions. The Soviets did it because, remember, China was not in the United Nations at the time. The only socialist countries that were recognized in the United Nations were the Eastern European ones and the Soviet Union. And besides that, Ukraine was represented and Belarusia. I don't know if everybody knows that. The Soviets didn't have one vote. They had three. And Mongolia. Okay. And the Eastern European countries. Hungary. Not the German Democratic Republic. East Germany. They were not represented. So theirs was basically a contribution on a diplomatic field. That's the way I understand it. And, of course, the World Peace Movement, the World Peace Council that was set up in 1945, had affiliates in every country of the world. And the line of the WPC, which still exists today, by the way, and the U.S. Peace Council in this country represents, they're the affiliate of the WPC. That was set up in 1945 by the Soviets. And every country of the world has an affiliate. They were involved with fighting against that, with the Stockholm Peace Appeal against nuclear weapons. And I want you to know, the only person in Congress in the United States who stood up and attacked U.S. involvement in the Korean War was Vito Marcantonio. He was a, he was a representative from New York, Italian-American community. He was a fellow traveler. To say bluntly, he was like like Paul Robeson, pro-Soviet, and he was the only one to stood up in the U.S. Congress to say the war was wrong. Other thing, the Veterans for Peace, which many people heard, we had a Veterans for Peace before. It was led by the Communist Party. Everything was led by the old party. The old party, which followed Comrade Stalin, remember that. Not just don't confuse it with the group that goes along with that name today. Entirely different formation. They have the same name, but not the same goals. The CP at the time, under Comrade Stalin and other communists, their position was to organize peace demonstrations. And the only peace demonstration we had in the United States, it was only one, could you believe it? And it was led by the CP USA, to its credit. It's perfect to stop now and go to the round robin. I recently read Anna Louise Strong's book, uh, Eyewitness in North Korea from the late 40s, and it went really well with this class. And I guess I just have like a, a sort of general question. What do you think North Korea would have looked like had they won the war against the South? My answer is it would have been a unified country, just like Vietnam became. As far as the political direction, I cannot predict that. But it would have been unified, which meant all those people and destruction, including the beginnings of napalm. Napalm was used in Korea, by the way, and then perfected in Vietnam. But it was done in Korea first. None of that would have happened. I just wanted to say, you know, it's a good reminder, you know, whenever you have any kind of conflicts with an existing socialist state, just a reminder, you know, why they have these things set in place, why, why they are authoritarian to the degree that they are. Even if you disagree with them, it's better than the alternative, obviously. Thank you. Yeah, is there any uh, relation between how North and South Korea or in North and South Vietnam were split? Like, was there any strategy or inspiration to take from one to the other? Well, they happened at about the same time. I don't actually know if there was any, like, actual strategic planning for, like, why they both 
happened that way, but I can I can only imagine that there had to be a reason that at almost the exact same time that North and South Vietnam and North and South Korea were split on parallels the way that they were. I did do some independent research like a while ago. I was on a DPRK kick. I would like to recommend from a, a documentary on YouTube from DW Documentary. They have a few North Korea ones. A lot of them have reactionary bourgeois elements, but one from four months ago called Life in North Korea. It has good information, shows the direction Korea is going, actually talks to the people of Korea, and it's uh, shot over a course of 10 uh, years. Also, it's very important to like realize once you break down this Western propaganda, once you actually like look into the details, it, it all falls apart. And the same stuff's happening with China and uh, Xi Jinping, and it's just very important to find all sides of the story and really, really do the research and dig through it. If I could add on to that quick, I have a bunch of different sources for people who have, you know, they're not necessarily pro-DPRK or anything, but they have unbiased sources on the DPRK that you can view, and I can get those all together and send those out to people um, later on. I've got a really good list of sources that people can look at for how to get good information on what's actually happening in the DPRK. I just wanted to, you know, this is just a suggestion for everyone to try to avoid using the imperialist nomenclature for the DPRK by saying North Korea. That's a very imperialist term. I mean, we should call them by what they call themselves, DPRK, or a shorter one is Popular Korea, something they say. They call it Popular Korea if you want to make a distinction. The South is an illegal state. There's only one Korea. And they just momentarily don't occupy the South. I think it's better for us to, you know, identify them for what they are, the sovereigns of the entire peninsula, not just the North. And the term is people's Korea. Not popular. People's. Maybe in Spanish it's popular. But in English, we used to, in the party, we used to call DPRK people's Korea. In fact... A newspaper in the DPRK that comes out in English is called People's Korea. That's the name of that newspaper. I used to read it. And and we also called China People's China to distinguish it from Taiwan, Nationalist China. What I also would like to correct is that Korea in Spanish is Korea. Korea Popular is uh, what okay. they say in, Spanish. in Cuba. I see North Korea being the most influential, true communist party that is existing in Asia. And I also see them as being necessary for us to study more in depth on rather than studying only on China, on Vietnam and USSR, uh, although we are pro-Soviet. It's, it's very good to see a continuance on Marxist-Leninism through Juche and through modern day today. I wanted to mention that book that we clarified, The Monstrous War, New Outlook, and I also have a PDF. It's another book that Comrade uh, Burchett wrote called Goji Unscreened, and it's a little over 100 pages, and it goes over the way uh, that U.S. troops and the prison camps treated the Korean and Chinese prisoners. So both of those books by Burchett is wonderful. And somebody was asking about Vietnam. Burchett also has a book called Vietnam North, which I have, and Vietnam South. 
those are uh, great books as well. He has a numerous of great books. That's one of the things I love about the people's school is that the teachers get to learn as well. Um, you know, that, that, that's one of the really nice things about the classes. We all get to kind of teach each other through asking questions, through answering questions, and making statements. It's an interesting thing to hear about having been traveled to Korea myself several times over the years and also having relatives and family members over there. It certainly is, I'd have to say, a very just, not a very much talked about thing beyond what you usually hear with the usual uh, far-right reactionary party uh, propaganda pieces over there. In fact, I'd almost say that from a perspective of something that's been over there, at least as much as I understood, the DPRK is not really talked about beyond uh, necessarily hushed tones. But from my understanding, lots of folks over there do have leanings and favorability towards reunification or peaceful talks towards the north. But due to the far-right government that still has a, a pretty tight hold on it and the reactionary older population that's been indoctrinated throughout the years, that a lot of the possible more peaceful reunification talks have been really stifled. That's also. correct. You are correct. <clears throat> and everything you said is exactly true. I actually wanted to ask you, I heard that during the Korean War that Stalin actually sent fighter pilots over to fight, actually, like, this is the only time during the Cold War, from what I know, that U.S. and Soviets fought against one another, or during these air battles that were kept classified for years and years and years, up until, you know, I think after the Cold War. I was wondering if you could confirm that or not. This is Angelo. I cannot confirm that. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if such things happened, but I couldn't confirm it. Yeah, I can confirm that. That is actually true. Thank you. Okay, thank you. I want to thank everybody for coming on. What's beautiful about the People's School is it's an ecumenical thing. It is not like the party. The party has positions. People's School is more of a, of a discussion so that a place that people can come to where they're not yelled at and shut down, like in so many places on the left, if you say something that's different, from what the majority of the people in a, in a political group think, they shut you down. We, don't, we can't do that here. This has to be a place where we can look at each other as comrades, and if we disagree, we disagree, but we don't hate each other because of it. That's important. So I want to thank everybody. This is Angelo, the director of the People's School. And with that, I'd like to thank everybody, and we could all adjourn now. Thank you, comrades.